right. Uh, here we are with uh, Henry. Hello, Henry. Hello. Good morning, Arash. Good morning. <laughs> We're here at the Dance Center on the sixth floor on November the 4th, 2017. Just for the, the record, I don't know who's keeping record. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just us. Uh, but we're here with Henry Daniels. No, yes. <laughs> Henry and Daniel, yes. <laughs> everybody makes the same mistake. Well, not everyone. I actually knew it definitely because <laughs> we worked together. Actually, it's maybe it's good to add this now that actually my first job uh, was with Henry Daniel off school. Uh, I was a Morsafranda and uh, met Henry at a show, and uh, that was my first official uh, job. Official pay job, yeah. Uh, in the piece, which, which, which was a great pleasure to do, and um, that that was a while ago. That was probably about. Yeah, we're hoping to get you so. back again. Yeah. Now, now that you're so busy. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so may, maybe let's get right into it. Uh, mm -hmm. if, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about uh, what you do mm -hmm. for the people that might not have uh, had encounters with you or, or have met you before, okay. uh, yeah. Well, currently I'm a professor of dance, performance studies, and new technology at Simon Fraser School for the Contemporary Arts. And uh, shockingly, I've been actually in Vancouver for 17 years. 17? <laughs> yes. It's, it surprises me because it's actually the, the longest I've ever lived anywhere except uh, the country I was born in, which is Trinidad hmm. in the Caribbean. And I've lived a lot of places. But this is the longest I've lived anywhere else. Anywhere else, yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, you're at SFU, and, and how, maybe if you tell us how long you've been at SFU. Well, in the 17 years that I've been there, um, I actually came from the UK to um, Vancouver. Uh, I had uh, finished a professional dance career in Germany. And... Uh, my wife and I, we were both dancers. Uh, we had a little young child. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we decided, okay, um, it's time to move. So we both left Germany where we'd been dancing for a number of years and moved to the UK where I have family and what, where my wife is from. Mm. So I decided to do a graduate degree at the Laban Center in mm. dance studies. And my wife retrained as a Pilates and gyrotonic instructor. Mm. So uh, at the Lavin Center, I did an MA in the sociology of dance with choreography and something called choreology as um, course uh, courses, mm -hmm. and um, had every intention really of going back into a full dance career. But Britain wasn't the same as, <laughs> as mm. Germany. <laughs> And uh, I decided, uh, you know, with a, a, a young child, um, I couldn't survive the same way as, as I did in Germany. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I took a strange choice, which I never thought I would do. I actually um, signed up to do a PhD mm. at Bristol University. And as soon as I did that, <laughs> I started getting job offers from universities right, left, and center. Mm. Uh, it kind of surprised me because um, I think at that time in the UK, uh, probably this was the reason they were going through something called uh, uh, practice-based research. 
Mm -hmm. So they were recruiting a number of people who uh, would do PhDs in something called practice as research. So since I had an entire professional career and had an MA, um, they thought I was a really good candidate mm -hmm. for hire. Mm -hmm. So I wrote my entire PhD teaching full-time at universities. Cool. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And then if you, uh, I say I wasn't sure about that. So your undergrad was at... Uh, actually, I, I, I actually didn't finish my undergrad degree. I attended two um, uh, institutions in the U.S., the uh -huh. Boston Conservatory of Music mm -hmm. and the Juilliard School. So that's where my oh. undergraduate training came from. But I left Juilliard at the beginning of my third year because basically I was exhausted. I was teaching, sorry, I was going to school full time, yeah. but I was also working what you would call the graveyard shift mm -hmm. um, because I didn't have any funding, a young student from the Caribbean, I would I was living in Brooklyn at first. I would teach, uh, sorry, I would work as a waiter until like, working the graveyard shift until about 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then take a train to Brooklyn and then get ready to come to class at Juilliard at 9 a.m. in the morning. That's heavy. And it literally wore me out. Mm -hmm. by, by the third year, right? So you did that the first two years? Well, I was at Boston <laughs> Conservatory of Music first. Oh, I see. Yeah, I did my freshman year there. But then what happened was I, I ran into uh, a Trinidadian uh, who was one of the inaugural original members of the Albinelli Dance Company. Oh. His name was Kelvin Rotadier. Mm -hmm. And Kelvin invited me to join the Albinelli Workshop Company. Mm -hmm. Now the workshop company was really uh, what you would call it like the third company. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, um, after one year with the workshop company, we got something called a CETA grant, which was a, a grant from the uh, New York State. Mm -hmm. So we were actually paid. I, that was my first paid job. Oh. Uh, yeah, I got my <coughs> first paid job with the Albinelli workshop oh. company. And um, I think we had something like uh, 30 performances a year. I can't remember. But we danced in every community center, jail, university, uh, you name it. Mm. I even performed in Rikers Island. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that, that was my first job. And uh, wow. we danced all the early old repertoire. And uh, yeah. So to come back to your question about my undergraduate work, I didn't finish my undergraduate degree. But when I went to do my master's degree at the Laban Center, they took all my credits. Uh -huh. So I went straight into the master's program with, uh, uh, normally in the UK, three years is an undergraduate degree anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow, amazing. <laughs> How did you learn it from Germany? Um, after... I was working with the, the early workshop company. There was a young Graham, well, uh, a fledgling Graham company run by a woman called Takako Asakawa. And her husband, who was a Canadian, um, David Hatch Walker. They were both principal dancers with the Graham company. Mm -hmm. 
they formed a little side company and uh, I got into that company and I was dancing with them. So when I left the early workshop company, I was dancing with two or three smaller companies. Mm -hmm. um, All in Germany? No, this is in New York. In New York, okay. Yeah. Because I had decided I, I really liked early company. But what happened is some very interesting, uh, I auditioned for the company once, and I was told I was too small, mm. which was really curious. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, because Ailey liked these big strapping men at that time. Mm -hmm. So y they said I was too small, and I realized that I'm not gonna hang around if I'm too small. So I started dancing with a number of smaller companies. One was the Takako Asakawa Dance Company. One was another one called um, Frank Ashley Dance Company, which mm. was down at the Henry Street Settlement Playhouse. Mm. Another one was the Pearl Primus Dance Company. Mm. And the last one was the Melakova Dance Company, which ironically was a ballet company. Okay. So I was dancing with four companies off and on. One was an Afro-Caribbean dance company, one was a ballet company, one was a Graham-based company, two were Graham-based companies. Mm. So you can imagine both my body was going through, oh, yeah. moving through. <laughs> and it was then that I got a job with the Limon Company. Oh, okay. So the Limon Company were hiring and I auditioned for the job. And actually, I was quite lucky because I had done a Limon piece when I was at Juilliard. So they, they told me afterwards, they said, how come this guy knows all the choreography? Ah. <laughs> oh, I see. So during the audition, um, I, was, I, had, I knew the vocabulary mm -hmm. from Juilliard. So they hired me. Wow, awesome. And uh, they were based in? The New York. New York, yeah. And I danced with them, uh, I think, for about half a year until something strange happened with the company. We didn't have work for like six months. So I had a dilemma what to do. Mm -hmm. And I met a woman from Munich who was hiring in New York. Mm -hmm. So she said to me, why don't you come to Munich and dance with me for a while? So I said, so So I went to Munich for half a year. Mm. Oh, wow. And then I came back to New York and danced with the Limon Company for another four years. I see. Oh, wow. And so then I decided to leave the Limon Company and go back to Europe. So I went back to Europe and then spent 10 years. In, in Germany? <laughs> in Did Germany. At that time, when you're talking about going back and forth, how old were you when you did Limon dance? And I think uh, I was in like my late 20s, early 30s. Early 30s. Yeah. yeah. What made you want to leave the Limon company? Well, it's interesting because the companies, um, the companies I danced with, especially those older companies, oh. I was really interested in their old repertoire. Right. Yeah. Was he still the artistic director at that point? No, he, he had died since right. the late 70s, mm -hmm. uh, mid 70s maybe. Maybe even early 70s, I can't remember, 72 maybe. Um, I wanted to dance the old repertoire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and the thing is, once you dance the old repertoire, it's just really repeating. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So after a while, you want to move on to something else. Mm-hmm. And the thing was, I was always a choreographer ever since I started dancing. Mm. I was always a choreographer. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to dance all the old, modern, contemporary mm-hmm. dance works. Mm-hmm. So I always knew I was going to form my own company at right. some point. And this is what I did when I left Le Monde and went back to Germany the second time. Mm-hmm. So I formed my first company in 1984, I think it was. Yeah. Your first company, what was the name of that one? Henry Daniel and Dancers. <laughs> nice. And this is the same as the one you have right now? No. Well, <coughs> basically, I don't have a company now. I have a name of a company. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I only use it every once in a while if I have an independent project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's called Full Performing Body. So how did you get a, end up getting into dance? <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> High school. <laughs> High school dance. High school. <laughs> well, it's actually not dance. Um, I always wanted to become an actor. Hmm. And uh, in high school, we were doing this one play, uh, uh, a play called The Emperor Jones. It's, I think it's by Eugene O'Neill, uh, uh, hmm. an American playwright. And basically, it's a one-character play. And... Uh, I thought I was going to get the lead role, (laughs) 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 and I didn't. But ironically, and and this keeps following me, um, there was this guy who was like six foot three, (laughs) (laughs) and they gave him the the lead role because it was an imposing figure. Uh So (laughs) I always end up being the little guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I get the same curse. Uh, but um, what happened was uh, they had to cast somebody as a, a, a witch doctor, a dancer. And they cast me in it because I was always very athletic. I played soccer, I ran, I did long jump, high jump, 200 meter hurdles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I would always do like hurdles with sprints because mm-hmm. I had strong legs, I could mm-hmm. jump. Um, if I did the sprint, the tall guys would beat me. Right. But if I did the, the sprint with the hurdles, I would could I could win. Oh wow! And what was your position playing soccer? So, I, well, I had three different positions. What was your favorite? I was goalkeeper. I love goalkeeper. I was uh, fullback, uh-huh. and I was center forward. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's some variation. Yeah. I didn't know you played soccer. Oh, I played soccer since I was about eight. Oh wow! So, Who's your team? <laughs> my team. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't really have a favorite team, but um, I mean, like, for example, I like uh, a couple of Italian teams. Um, I like a couple of uh, German teams, uh, Borussia Dortmund, Munich. Dortmund. Uh, yeah, I like um, a couple of British teams, the Spanish teams. Uh, well, Barca is always a, a favorite, but I also love... Um, Atletico. Oh yeah, excuse me. Um, so, and you know, <laughs> I, I I hate to say which one I like, but you know, I'm Paris Saint Germain with Neymar now. Neymar now, <laughs> yeah. They're winning three nothing actually as we speak. 
And you and you were saying about the the, the play. That was so about, this yeah. this play, I didn't get the lead role, and they asked me to dance. And I did this production, and it was, it was cool. So I started dancing. <laughs> and uh, when I left school, actually, I joined a theatre company that was run by a very famous director who later won the Nobel Prize for Poetry. Mm-hmm. His name is Derek Walcott. Mm-hmm. So he wow. ran the Trinidad Theatre Workshop. So when I left high school, I joined the Trinidad Theatre Workshop and I joined a dance company in Port of Spain, Trinidad. So I was dancing and acting simultaneously. And I, I made up my mind to dance when we did a tour, the company did a tour of the US. We went to New England and New York. And this was great because, you know, like I had just turned 19 or something, maybe close to 20. And here I was on tour with this company in the US, a 19-year-old. And I decided I should go and study dance. So that's when I went to the Boston Conservatory of Music. So that was when you actually moved to to the US. So after we came back from tour, I announced that I was going over to study dance. Mm. My parents nearly killed me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that she was. All right. <laughs> yeah, <this laughs> you want to do what? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I feel the same. Very, very similar story. What What are some unexpected obstacles you have encountered in your career? Um, unexpected obstacles. I think maybe if I would generalize, I would say there were things, you know, you have a picture of yourself, who you are, who you think you are, and then you run into situations where you're absolutely shocked the way other people look at or perceive you. So that's a generalization. If I could be a little bit more specific, um, for a substantial part of my career, I've always been a, what you would call in a particular kind of language, a token. <laughs> token. Oh. Token. Oh, I see. <laughs> I see. Um, but I've always seen myself as a, a dancer, skilled, in a particular situation. And then sometimes you realize that's now how people are seeing me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had all kinds of things from prejudice to amazing, surprising, wonderful um, uh, uh, commentaries by people mm-hmm. um, because of this mm-hmm. sense of, of you have this picture of yourself. And sometimes, you know, other people would see you as something else. But it could go in either direction. It could be if someone sees you as this, what an amazing person. But you don't think yourself as this amazing person. Mm -hmm. And then someone else would see you in a very prejudicial way. And then you would realize that they're making you so much smaller than you think you are. Uh So sometimes people... um, 
I've had comments about my performance that, you know, it's just like, wow, I didn't know I was that good. Oh, I didn't know I stood out that much. Mm-hmm. And then I would have comments from people, racialized comments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. But not always on stage. Yeah. Yeah. I can give you, for example, a, a fascinating incident that happened to me. Um, once uh, the company I was performing with in Munich, we went to a little town in, in Bayern near, I think, the Starnberger See. It's, it's a lake. And we performed in this little small town where they don't really see many black people. Mm. And after the performance, um, the audience came backstage and there was this little boy. He must have been about five years old. And he walked up to me and he looked at me like that. And he took my hand <laughs> and he did this. I mean, your audience didn't <laughs> see what I just did there, but he, he ran his hand over my hand, and he looked to see if the color came off. And it was such an honest gesture. Mm-hmm. I just hugged him, and we both laughed, because he had never seen a black person in his life. Mm. Wow. So he thought my color would come off when he rubbed my hand. Yeah. So that's an unexpected, surprising situation yeah. mm-hmm. and 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 I've had some like those and I've had situations where people would really seriously racially attack me mm. yeah. there's a scar that I have here one here you see that came from an attack or oh, physical attack physical oh, oh, attack wow. yeah. and that was when we, we were and that was in the UK in the UK oh in the yeah, UK. yeah. So there's a lot of tension in the air well, it's surprising that you can find this anywhere you go. So it's not limited to one country or one place. Yeah. So you, you get all these surprising situations that, you know, it's just like, wow, where did that come from? And sometimes they're amazingly, pleasantly wonderful, and sometimes they are horrendous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So How unpredictable. Unpredictable, yeah. How did you feel that varied between Germany and Germany and the UK? Could you notice? It's interesting because in, I lived in the UK because I have family in the UK. I have other brothers who live in the UK. My father emigrated to the UK way back um, when I was very young. When my parents separated. Um, the UK, I love the UK because they have a much more, much longer history of, I would say, I'm not sure I'm gonna use the word integration, or, but there's a much longer history of different peoples coming together in that country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, it comes from colonialism. Mm-hmm. Germany has a different kind of colonialism, mostly from, from Africa. Um, and the German, being in Germany is very different. At the time I was there, you can only have a German passport if you were German. Mm-hmm. German born? Um, well, if you had a German parent. Right. Yeah, right. one or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's different now. Um, I lived in the US too. And I think one of the first things that surprised me about moving to the US 
as a, a, a young man, I understood from the very beginning the meaning of the word capitalism. <laughs> I can't explain it, but I understood what that term meant mm -hmm. only by being there. Um, in Germany, I, it was the place, the country where I was most rewarded for the work I was doing. I got paid properly. I, I, you know, I, I, I had a salary that was constant, mm -hmm. uh, regular. Uh, in New York, I got paid wonderfully, but I would have like 20 weeks of work a year. In Germany, you have, you get paid 52 weeks a year and you get a Christmas bonus. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's in the UK, um, that was more a situation where I was an academic, so of course I got paid, but I didn't have, I couldn't continue my professional career, so my academic career came in. Mm -hmm. So culturally, academically, professionally, there's so many differences between the US, Germany, the UK, and the Caribbean, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that I feel, uh, and maybe I could mention the, the <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my production here, very nomadic. So born in the Caribbean, educated in the U.S. and the U.K., worked professionally in Germany, uh, the U.K., the U.S., and, and now Canada. I have a very nomadic lifestyle mm -hmm. in the sense that I, oh, where do I belong? So a piece of me belongs in Germany, mm -hmm. seriously. Mm -hmm. um, a piece of me belongs in the U.K., a piece of me belongs in the U.S., a piece of me belongs in the Canada. But deep down, I feel that I am a Trinidadian. But ironically, when I go back to Trinidad, some people say to me, are you from here? <laughs> 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 so to expand on the question you asked me about how do I feel about Germany as opposed to the UK, mm -hmm. I would include all those countries and say that there's a bit of me in each one of these places, because I live long enough in each one of them to have a sense of part of me has been informed by, indoctrinated by, acculturated by mm -hmm. living there. Yeah. Mm. Why don't we actually talk about your show for a second now? Yeah. So our audience knows. Mm. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about this? And well, this show is actually um, a research project. Um, I usually do multi-year research projects. It's, it's how I structure my academic and artistic life. Um, I'm a scholar, but I'm also um, an artist. Um, and I feel fully uh, invested in both. Um, so coming into the academy from a professional career, I had a particular perspective that I want to keep connected and involved with that, but I also want to keep connected and involved. I mean, why would I spend five years writing a PhD? Mm -hmm. So when I do projects, I, I, I find a particular thematic, and I explore that thematic for a few years, two, three years. The project, for example, I did with you, Project Barker, that was another three-year project. And that's also determined by the funding structure mm -hmm. that I work with in the university system. Mm -hmm. So 
luckily or unluckily for those of us who work in the academy, we can access certain kinds of funding mm -hmm. that normally as a professional dancer, I can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I don't apply for funding from Canada Council. I apply for funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research right. Council. So I mount these multi-year projects that are funded. Mm -hmm. Now this one isn't funded, the current one, because my research grant is still being looked at. I will know um, by March next year if it is actually funded. So this is the latest in about four different multi-year funded projects where I examine a particular thematic. And this thematic, the piece is called, this piece is called Nomadas, which is nomads. And the larger three-year research is called Contemporary Nomads. Mm. And I'm actually looking as a dancer, as a choreographer, we all move. That's our business, movement. But I'm fascinated by the fact that we're dealing with the business of moving the human body in space. And there's a particular phenomenon that's happening now worldwide, a transnational movement of people across large spaces for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. So we can call it the refugee crisis, whatever, crisis, whatever yeah. we want to call it. Mm -hmm. it's, it. It happens across different axes, across different wars. You can look at Mexico, the US. You can look at East Asia toward Canada. You can mm -hmm. look at Myanmar towards Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. You could look at uh, Southeast Asia towards Australia. You could look at North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa towards the Mediterranean, to France, to Germany, to England. You could look at crossing the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So there is this constant movement of people. And I'm fascinated with the idea that this micro scale of movement that we as dancers have mm -hmm. can be related to this large scale transnational movement. Mm -hmm. And what I sort of conceptualized it as a transnational choreography. Mm -hmm. So here's this chaotic choreography of people moving back and forth. Mm -hmm. And here we in studios inside specific places playing with the movement of bodies moving back and forth. But I did not want to label it a quote unquote refugee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Because yeah. I'm a little bit sick of <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's really, in a way, it, it's connected, but it's necessarily, um, it's necessarily not it's about, it, it's yeah. a kind of connection about yes, it moving is. people, and, and like, you know, our own past, or yes. in a way, your own uh, past of, like, actually mm -hmm. moving through continents and space. So we looked at a little bit of that in mm -hmm. the project that I did with you. Yeah. Um, but... As you ask me about this project now, and as I go through this current project, I actually realized that f for many of us artists, a lot of what we do is about our own lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, when I look back at all the projects I've done and all the places I've moved, I realize that I'm actually, this piece mm -hmm. is about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it is not just about that. 
It's about all the other people who I've encountered. Mm-hmm. It's their story as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm working with a group of students now and pushing them to look at their own past and present and figure out, okay, where did I move from? Where did my parents move from? How did I get here where I am right now? Mm-hmm. What was the journey like to where I am now? Mm-hmm. Um, what was the condition that made me leave where I was? And it could be anything. We, for example, we have students who come from Toronto. Yeah. Why did they come to Vancouver to school? Why couldn't you stay in Toronto and do dance? Why come to Vancouver? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you going to do when you finish your degree? You're going to go back to Toronto. So there is a general model of everyone who has moved. There's a condition Mm -hmm. that makes you want to leave Mm -hmm. for whatever reason or not. Mm -hmm. There is a journey to get there, this place you're going to. Mm -hmm. There is a settling in once you get there. Mm -hmm. And crucially, there is either is a desire, even if it's a romantic desire, to go back. But, <laughs> but you know, conceptually, you can never go back. Even if you go back physically, part of you belongs in that new place that you go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is the rough framework that I'm working with. Mm. These four or five stages of mm-hmm. a particular journey. Why do you leave? What's the journey like? Mm-hmm. What happens when you get there? What happens if you want to go back? Mm-hmm. And this, I guess it reminds me of your book that we briefly talked about the other night. Well, the book is actually the, I would say, the, the academic component to this artistic work. Mm-hmm. The title of the book is called Going West to Find East, Going East to Find West, Choreographing Cortical, Re-Choreographing Cortical, and cartographical maps. So the first part of the title, Going West to Find East, Going East to Find West, is based on on an historic incident that we worked on in Project Parker. Why did Columbus leave Spain 525 years ago to cross the Atlantic, to find this imaginary and what are the consequences of that trip? Mm-hmm. And when you see what's happening now, the same thing happened 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. The conflict between Islam and Christianity. Movement of people back and forth. Receiving or having or encountering people who are different from you and not being able to understand them and having violence happen because of that lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. So you actually see that it's a cyclic process. But I was fascinated with the concept behind this this term. Of course, Columbus knew, since the Earth is round, if you travel as far west as possible, you end up in the east. Mm But I became fascinated with the idea that if you, if you pick one point of view and you follow that point of view without modulation, without changing your mind, without adapting, you'll end up having the exact opposite point of view. Mm-hmm. 
and you wouldn't even figure it out until you realize you're doing everything you said you'd never do. Mm -hmm. I became fascinated with that idea. Mm -hmm. So this, it turns now into an exchange. What happens with, when you meet the other? Do you have violence? Mm -hmm. Or do you try to figure it out? Mm -hmm. uh, what happens if you don't modulate your point of view when you meet someone who you don't understand at all? So the second part of the title, re-choreographing cortical and cartographic maps. I'm fascinated with the idea that every movement we make the brain maps it, mm. and then remaps it. So everything we do, if you reach for this microphone, your body knows exactly how far it is. Mm. If you touch someone, the space that you occupy, your body knows exactly how to negotiate it. Mm -hmm. Because the brain keeps making maps of everything that you do. Mm. But when we move in space, <laughs> we, we have those maps as well. So we have these geographical maps in which we cross oceans, invade mm. territories, visit places. There's these geographical maps. Mm -hmm. So when these two maps come together, mm. you have a fascinating kind of network of looking at space and time. And we have the possibility to rearrange those maps. Mm -hmm. So that's why I call it re-choreographing cortical and cartographic maps. Mm. Cool. And mm -hmm. when's the publication? Do you know yet? I'm just about, I'm having it, the proposal read by a colleague of mine and about to send it to the publisher. So. Cool. So I'm looking reasonably soon. Well, you know how publication, mm -hmm. it takes about three years before a book, they, they get your publication coming out. So. But we'll know. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, um, so yeah, I can let you read some of it sometime. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I totally would love to. But looking forward to it, yeah. This, it's very fa uh, sounds very fascinating. And what is the most significant, or what is a significant event that has happened for you as an artist? Whether that's um, a work you've seen, or a historical event, or, um, yeah, what's one thing that really changed your life? Uh, wow, the one thing that really changed my life as an artist. I guess maybe the, the probably the, the, the first thing was realizing that number one, I could have a career as an artist um, back in the Caribbean because uh, once I got into dance, I realized that this thing would take over my life. And if it was going to take over my life, I had to f make it a career. Mm. So when I left the Caribbean, I was determined that I would have a career. So encountering dance, well, also the theater, encountering the theater, I should say, because I still use a lot of... Um, I still vacillate between dance, theater, and performance, whatever you want to call those terms, mm -hmm. however you want to define them. Once I realized that my life was going to be taken up by the theater, I wanted to have a career. So realizing that I could have a career, and I think probably between the Caribbean and New York, I knew that. Mm -hmm. it, that was significant. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I guess 
getting your first job is part of that. <laughs> wow, I can get paid doing this. <laughs> how do we keep doing this? Exactly. Yeah, right. Now, how do you maintain it? <laughs> yeah, it's always the case. And then, so like, who would you say helped you in your career if you were going to pick maybe two people? Oh, a number of people. number of people. I would say, for example, um, Kelvin Otadier, who passed away about two years ago. Uh, one of the original members of the Alvin Haley Company and the guy who gave me my first paid job and who said to me, ironically, he's the one who said to me, Henry, I don't think Alvin will hire you. You're too small. (laughs) (laughs) And he was in the company? Well, he had just left the company then and he was running this workshop company. This workshop company, yeah. And he said that to me in all honesty. Um, because he was the one who uh, took me from Juilliard when I, you know, I was having that dilemma at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. He said, if you don't go back to Juilliard, you can join the workshop company. Mm-hmm. So that was my decision. So he was very seminal in me, um, in fact, leaving the first company where there was a majority of black people in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, every other company after that, I think. Well, the Limon Company actually did have um, a good spread of people, although it was primarily white. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there were Kevin, who now is teaching at Purchase, Kevin Wynn, and myself, Carlos Orta, who is a Venezuelan. And that was in the company? He was in the <coughs> company as well. There were three of us. Is there anybody else that you'd say has helped you? Yeah. Um, the woman I met in, in New York who invited me to come to Germany. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, uh, I just met her again this past summer when the company had a reunion in Munich. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known her now for, what, 20 years, 25 years, um, actually maybe 30 years. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, in, in many different ways, because she gave me that first job in Germany. Um, when I went back to Germany the second time, she hired me. Um, And our, ca- our paths keep crossing. I was her associate director in in um, five in sorry in Münster. Mm-hmm. She made me her associate director there in the yeah. company. So we have this long relationship, and she's just been instrumental in positions in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think. Of course, my wife. <laughs> nice. That's a good I one. I better say that. Yeah. It's on the record. <laughs> yeah. So if you were going to, if there was one artist left in the world, mm-hmm. who would you choose that to be? Oh, my God. I've, I've <laughs> that, I've <laughs> oh, my God. It's meant to be a hard one. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't answer that because <laughs> even now I'm thinking about it and it's changed 
it's changed a number of times. Mm -hmm. It's changed a number of times. Uh, it's it's people's work who have admired over the years. What do you mean if there was a one? If you could, you know, it's either there would be none, or you could choose one. One artist to be left. <laughs> You can say it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there was nobody left in the world but me, it would be me. <laughs> See, I get out of that question. <laughs> That's so right. who would I dance with if there was nobody left? <laughs> yes. Is that your final answer? Okay. Um, so, in with the current um, way that the arts seem to be functioning within. I guess Canada specifically, what would you, uh, would you have any advice or recommendations for young emerging artists right now? Uh, it's becoming, it seems to be becoming harder and harder to make a living as an artist, or maybe it's yes. our perception. Yes, yes. But, um, yeah, uh, if there's anything that you would offer to a I mean, that's, that's for me easy. Uh -huh. It's easy because as a choreographer, when I walk into a room, whether it's an audition, whether it's a piece I'm working on. Sometimes you can tell people who have a passion for what they're doing. Yeah. And that always attracts me, an individual. There's something about that person. And it, it really is not about technique. Mm -hmm. It's about what you want to do as an individual artist. And this is curious because I love technique but I love individuality more. Mm -hmm. But I also love the theater. I love bodies. And right now, for example, I'm working with a group of young dancers, but I have a musician who is movement training. I have an actress who doesn't have a dance background, mm -hmm. but who can move. I love working with bodies that can move, mm -hmm. who have a sensitivity and a passion for moving. And we can figure out what ha happens after that. So my advice to people is if you have a passion for the theater, you have a passion for becoming, if you have a passion for figuring something out through the theater or through performance, go for it. But if you don't have that passion, this life is too hard to do. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's not going to bring you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. yeah. Why are you doing it? Yeah. And and you always have to be scrambling, and at some point you say, okay, do I want to keep doing this? Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that if you keep pursuing it, opportunities come up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're not the opportunities you think they will be. I never thought I would become a professor in a university. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's led me there. Mm -hmm. yeah. So who knows where passion or your dance or your art will take you. But if you pursue it, and you pursue it with that passion and that conviction and that rigor, it will take you to the next stage, even though that next stage is unpredictable right now. Mm -hmm. So that's the advice I would give. Thank you. So, this is the last real question, and then Rash has one more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, you had to, if you had a superpower, what superpower would that be? My, I would support the arts with more money. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was so fast. <laughs> so like a functional simple, very simple, very simple. 
<laughs> I would put up more support for art institutions. <laughs> that would really be hard. a superpower. Yeah, that's that awesome. would be my I'd, superpower. That would be my mind. <laughs> Hands down, there's no uh, doubt about that. That's great. Awesome. Okay, so usually. Funding, funding. <laughs> <laughs> for those passionate artists. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. So then, uh, actually, we usually play this. Uh, uh, a, a game in a way for mm. the closing, mm. which is uh, I I saw it growing up for it would be an artist on a hot seat as you mentioned coming <laughs> in <laughs> as you are in the hot seat uh, and we would play this either either or game basically I think mm. in, in English it's called that where you pick one of two as fast as you can. Oh God, I'm nervous. I hate these things. <laughs> okay, it's ahead. actually fun. <laughs> would you like to play? Sure. Okay. We have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> mm. All right. Okay. Uh, it'll be quick and fun. Salt or lime? <laughs> <laughs> Margarita. Already <laughs> <laughs> <Marcy Rose. laughs> Socks or leg warmers? <laughs> Shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Lakes or oceans? <laughs> Water. <laughs> Paper or pencil? Writing. <laughs> Caramel or vanilla? Both. <laughs> <laughs> Mountains or shores? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what do you call those things where you jump off the mountain and you have a glider? Uh, paragliding. Paragliding. <laughs> okay. Wow, this is really good. Becoming a real collaboration. A zebra or donkey? <laughs> no, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pick a zebra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. Pictures or paintings? Ooh. Pictures or painting, right? You're supposed to answer it really quick, right? Yes. Painting. The first one comes to mind. Pictures and paintings. Yeah. You can cheat too. Yeah. Images. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Leaves or grass? Leaves fall. Whichever comes to your mind first. Whichever Leaves of the two. fall. <laughs> I'm just seeing Vancouver right now. Leaves. Wonderful. Leaves. Okay. <laughs> um, black or white? Oh, Lordy. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, it's black. <laughs> Fishes or birds? Swimming. <laughs> Basketball or soccer? Oh, soccer. <laughs> Cloud or sky? Cloud or sky? Sky. Sky. Dice or cards? Dice. Dice? Yeah. Or beer or wine? Both. <laughs> Lions or kittens? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> Both. Both. Simple or simpler? Complex. <laughs> Tea or coffee? One. Tea. Wood or marley? Wood. Sunset or sunrise? Oh, that's hard. All day. <laughs> Both. <laughs> All day. All day. All right, this is it. So you've, uh, you, you've probably identified a key feature. <laughs> Inability to make up his mind. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing. You were quickly combining the two under, like, what was the associate word that will come third? Mm -hmm. Or wh what they have in common? 
But um, it's 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 I, I guess it's a it's a feature of my personality that I, I I notice well ever since I was young. There's always a desire to to mediate between extremes, mm -hmm. uh, and I feel as if I am extreme. I'm either one of the extreme ends. But there's always an attempt to mediate extremities in myself. Mm -hmm. So this is why it's, it's hard to pick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it it's really hard is, to pick yeah. just one. Yeah. Totally. Thank you. That's fine. Uh, Diego, do you have uh, any more questions you no. might want to ask? I think, I think that's all, unless you have any closing comments. No, I mean, this was fun. <laughs> this was really fun. Thanks for doing this. It's actually started snowing. Since yeah, yeah, I noticed. Yeah. It's fantastic. Right? Yeah, and uh, as we're hitting. Uh, close to the one hour mark mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's it it was really fun and so maybe we could advertise my show let's do yeah let's do a real <laughs> advertisement for it now okay so the show is called Nomadas um, uh, Spanish word for nomad and I just like the sound of it <laughs> and uh, uh, it happens at the Gold Coast Center for the Arts what we call the SFU Woodwards from November 22nd to the 25th and then again from November 29th to December 2nd. So we actually have eight shows. Show is probably going to be about 70, 75 minutes long from 8 p.m. each night. But we have a, a interactive audiovisual installation for each one of those uh, days from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Hmm. So for an hour and a half, we have an open room um, the set design is built by Alan Story, a local artist, mm -hmm. sculptor. Um, the media design is being done by two ex-students, well, um, one alumnus from um, SFU and his brother. They have a collective called Kimarek. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's um, Sami Chien and Shanghan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Shanghan took a course with me, but he actually graduated from NASCAR. Ah. And another alumnus is doing the main music composition. This is Adam Basanta. Mm -hmm. He's a, a Vancouver young composer living in Montreal. And uh, yeah, the choreography and direction is by myself. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And all the performers are current students in the School for the Contemporary Arts. And how many performers? We have 15 performers. 15 performers, wow. Um, and not all of them are dancers. We have uh, people, we have a couple of graduate students, not performers, who are working as assistant dramaturgs. Mm -hmm. We have um, our production and design student crew. Mm -hmm. We have uh, um, an assistant composer who is um, a music student but is also dancing in the piece. Um, we have a young actress from the theater program who is also performing in the piece. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a a group of, of of students, undergraduate and graduate students from throughout the school for the contemporary arts. Mm -hmm. Mostly dancers, but not all of them are dancers. Mm -hmm. And the dancers are what year are they in general? Um, uh, generally, second, third, and fourth year. Mm -hmm. And who knows, there might be one or two fifth-year students. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We count this as fourth year. <laughs> Just to clarify, that's on November 22nd to 25th, and then again November 29th to December 2nd at 8 p.m. at Woodward's. Yep. Yep. Woodward's. We, we call it Woodward's. Yeah, we right. Everybody Woodward's. should know where that yeah. is. Yeah. 
Um, that's and that's the year is two thousand seventeen. In case anybody's listening to this in future years, <laughs> no, it will be never. <laughs> yeah, if you are listening to it in the future, you have missed the show, and you have to go and <laughs> talk to Henry about other shows. Okay. Cool. Thank you very much for your time. Well, you it's much. been a pleasure, Arash and Diego. Thank so you. Hopefully, maybe in the future we can work together on something. Yes. We can do this again at some point. We'd yeah. love to hear more from you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's always more stories, right? Well, let's say that if this research grant comes through, I'll have funding for three years and I'll be looking for some interesting people to Fantastic. work with. Yes, thank you. <laughs> looking forward to it. See thank you next you. time. Okay.